The Bible typically asks major questions, should, as revelation from God, and it gives us quite often major answers to those questions. We can come to the Bible and ask questions about the meaning of life or what is wrong with the world or what would fix what is wrong with the world. Indeed, we might better ask who would fix what was wrong with the world. We come face to face with these life questions in Scripture, and it is my good and glorious vocation to tell you what indeed Scripture gives us that answer, and so it is today. We come to this minor prophet today, and many have asked the same almost unanswerable questions from this book. Interpreters throughout the ages have come puzzled by this, and they've agonized over this question, and still, even this morning, I had someone approach me, looking, knowing what we were going to study, and ask me this question today. So, I'll do my best to provide you with the right answer. Is it Habakkuk or Habakkuk? Verily I say unto you, it is Habakkuk or Habakkuk. I don't know. I, I, I used to say it one way and I realized it as I was going through and I was, I was going to be preaching to you. I, I actually say it both ways, like on and off, so um, I apologize for the inconsistency, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. Uh, usually I say Habakkuk, but almost definitely now that I've, I've said all of that, I'm going to say it both ways, so I apologize for that. You can find Habakkuk in the Bible, in the pocket in front of you if you need to borrow that for your Bible on page 785. And although we joke about that being the major question, the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, does put before us a very major question, a question that is asked very frequently of people, a question that is asked even in our own lives. How can God use evil to produce good? Shouldn't he only use that which is good to produce good? Isn't using evil, isn't using its working in the world, even using those who are wicked and sinister to produce, even if it is good. Below a holy and unimpeachable God, isn't it wrong for him to use wicked people to serve his own ends? Why not build up by what is good? How does God relate to things like evil nations and evil wicked warriors? We get to ask that question because this is the question of this book itself. Let us then turn and read this just first chapter this morning as we think through the beginning of these questions. The oracle that Habakkuk or Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. The horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. 
all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. He rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at the watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is the word of our God. A little bit beyond the first chapter there. We will not blame me, but we'll blame the guy who made the chapter divisions. First thing I want to instruct you on is the inability of the law. The inability of the law. From these first four verses, Habakkuk's complaint that he brings forward, it is indeed that is a, com- a complaint. He is, he is working, it seems, for the Lord. He, he talks about his own difficulties and what he sees going on around him. He says, listen, I, I, I see iniquity. I see destruction and violence and strife and contention before me. I look around and I see bloodshed and I see wickedness going on. And I, I wonder, why is it that you don't act? He cries out to you, violence, but nothing's happening. The idea is that he's crying for help. Habakkuk knows, he knows of the wickedness around him and he wants things to change. He wants things to be different, and he needs help to do that. So he calls out to the Lord, help me fix this situation in Judah. Help me fix the situation that is around me. But he's getting no answer from the Lord. And he says, destruction and everything is around me. Verse 4, I think, is the key to all of this. He says, so the law is paralyzed. It's not working. It's, it's worthless. It's, it's empty. It's void. When it does go out, when finally the law is somewhat released because of the, the wicked surrounding the righteous, because the wicked outnumber the righteous, justice does go out, but it's perverted. It's not the justice that your law seems to imply, but it's a justice that wicked men want to give. Why not wake up your people? Increase those who are righteous among us. Bring us that which is good, that the law might do its work. Bring people who will enforce and enact your law to mitigate the sin of the people, to hold those who are guilty accountable. Habakkuk here recognizes this incredibly important truth. The life of the law is null. It has no life in it. 
without good men and women enacting those laws which are good, the law has no power. Amongst the people of Judah is the law of God, yet simply sin itself and the presence of sin in the world is able to immobilize the law, to render it paralyzed, and to pervert any judges or any judgment that would come out of it. It takes righteousness in people to produce righteousness from the law. The law doesn't produce it on its own. When you want the law to work, if it's wielded by evil men, it simply won't. We know this ourselves. Though our laws are not God's, the same can be applied to us. The very founding of our country, we had attention. All men are created equal, which was written by a man who owned slaves. That tension mounted until it blew up into a civil war. We then wrote two amendments to our Constitution, 13th and 14th Amendment in 1865 and 1868, which nullified slavery and made all men equal. And yet, for a hundred years, wicked men worked to undermine those laws, to circumnavigate those laws, to reinterpret those laws, to continue to suppress men made in the image of God. It isn't a problem with the 14th Amendment. It's not a problem with the 13th Amendment. The problem is the men who wielded those things. Right and good laws are important. You cannot have justice without them. But you can't have justice with only them either. The law is inept when it doesn't have one working with it who is righteous and good and holy. Habakkuk looks around him and he says, the wicked surround us. We are outnumbered. And so even if, if we righteous few want to make a difference, even if we want to uphold what you have called us to do, we cannot do it. It's a reminder to us, more importantly of our salvation, which we will get to in time, but it's a reminder to us that if this is true for the law of God, how much more is it true of our own laws? It is right to work for wicked laws to be changed, but we are never to think that that is the end goal of what we are here to do. Changing laws will not change hearts. And changing laws will not subdue the wickedness of people. There is an inability in the law. But then we turn our attention to point number two, which is the injustice of the Chaldeans. The injustice of the Chaldeans. God tells Habakkuk, that he is going to give him exactly what he's been asking for. He will indeed answer this complaint about how long does he have to wait for God. God is going to give him an answer, but it's not the answer that he expects. As a matter of fact, he goes out of his way to say, you wouldn't believe it if I told you, and I'm going to tell you, and it's going to be hard. He will discipline them. The Chaldeans are an absolute disaster of a people. They are warlike, and they are greedy. They are bitter, they are hasty. They are a war machine unlike anybody had ever seen up until that time. He says, I am bringing them on my own people. 
I am raising them up, a wicked and evil people. I will give them victory after victory after victory, and then I will bring them on my people. It is the last line in verse 11 of the Lord's answer that really hits at the heart of it. They sweep by like the wind and go on. The terror that he has just brought, the, the image of horror and destruction that he has just brought. Even in that, the Lord says they are guilty men whose own might is their God. Their own might is their God. Is this not the essence of wickedness in the world? It's not just that these people are guilty, but their God is their strength. That is what they worship. That is what they follow. That is what they serve. This is an ongoing issue throughout all of the minor prophets. Nations who glory in their might, who continually overlook their atrocities. They don't think of them as atrocities because if they can do it, then it's right for them to do it. This is nothing but the creed their might makes right. This is how all injustice, oppression, and bloodshed begins. If we can take that land, if we can subdue that people, then why should we not? Anyone, anywhere, who simply refuses to stop and ask the question of whether God wants them to do something is following this same simple rule. Might makes right. If I am able to do it, what does it matter if I should do it? You want to go buy a thing. Do you stop and ask yourself, should I buy this thing? Or do you stop and ask yourself, do I have enough money to buy this thing? Those are not the same questions. Should I say this thing? I have the opportunity to. We do these things, not just in the essence of military conquest. We do these things in our everyday life. Quite often, the question that we ask is simply, do we have the capability of doing the things we do? Not, should we do them? The Chaldeans don't care if they should. They only care if they can. Their own might is their God. As long as they can put their hand to it, as long as they can accomplish it, they will strive forward to do just that. Habakkuk notices quite readily and quite frankly the difficulty in this. He understands, I think, clearly what God is saying. But he can't help but point out the incongruity in the whole ordeal. The wicked, he said, swallow up the righteous. In verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent while the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You almost feel Habakkuk saying, no, God, man, this is the opposite of what I was asking for. What I needed were righteous people to get the law to work. But that's not what I get. What I get is you bringing more wickedness upon us. You're not raising up good people. You're raising up wickedness, and you're bringing wickedness upon us. How can you, who is of eyes so pure that you cannot look evil? How can you, who is so righteous and good and holy and true, allow such a thing to happen? How can you allow the righteous to be swallowed up? You get the sense immediately when he says this, this isn't this sort of 
Abraham praying over Sodom and Gomorrah, a situation where ten righteous people, yeah, yeah, will pardon, will save. Habakkuk seems to believe that he and his little righteous cohort, they're going to perish with everybody else. How can you allow this to happen? How can you allow the judgment to come down upon us and upon them? How can you use evil people to bring forward that which is good? How can a God who is so pure, if we were so bold to say so, soil himself and dirty his hands by using such a wicked people? Would it be right for the United States to use a terrorist organization to deal with someone who is slightly better? Canada's got problems. Should we, not least of which is bacon, should we, should we contract with Al-Qaeda to put an end to it? We would, we would say that that's a wicked thing to do. It would be wicked for us to align ourselves with wickedness, even to carry out what we might think are good things. Is it right for Robin Hood to steal from the rich and give to the poor? Can God use that which is evil to bring about that which is good? Shouldn't God use good to produce good? Notice the kind of language that Habakkuk uses here. If you read the New Testament and then you read verses 14 through 17, you hear the words of Jesus ringing in your ear. This makes Babylon sound very anti-Christ. They're acting like Christ. They're dragging the sea for nations. Jesus calls to himself people who are fishermen by trade. And so he says, yeah, 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 you, you fished for fish before, but now you're going to fish for men. The exact same kind of picture that Jesus uses for the good of the nations. He is going to bring the nations into himself. He's going to send out his disciples. And for the good of the nations, they are going to bring in a haul of fish. They are going to fish for men and women to come to know the Lord. Babylon will do the same, but not for the good of the nations, for the good of her own lusts and desires. He will keep emptying his net, mercilessly killing and killing and killing forever. At the very least, when we listen to Habakkuk speak here, we get an understanding of how we ought to rightly complain to God. The psalmist and Habakkuk both do this very, very well. They hardly take accusatory stances with God, but rather seek knowledge and help. How can this be, Lord? How can you do this? How can, how can one who is so pure and right and good do this? In the second chapter, we get our answer. Point three, the righteous live by faith. Let us read. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects his own, as his own, all peoples. 
Shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, those who awake and will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell on them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house and sets his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell on them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk does what is right. He's provided his response. He's given his question. He does not press the matter further. He simply presses it to God and he stands back and he says, listen, you are God. You will do what you do. I will simply wait and listen for it. God does give him a response. That response is twofold. And each of those responses is important. First, he generally insists Quite clearly does God insist that simply because he is using this evil and impetuous nation, the Chaldeans, does not mean that he sanctions or approve of the evil that he does. And secondly, he seeks to help Habakkuk understand how he is going to obtain the good he sought in the first place. Let's turn to that first bit first. He will punish the Chaldeans for what they have done. The vision is for the end. And although it might not happen in Habakkuk's life, he knows that it will happen. God seals the promise to him. Wait for it. If it doesn't come, don't worry. My word is sure and secure. It will happen. The Chaldeans will pay for what they have done. In order to seal this, God brings five woes that mock them. In the first one, he talks about how they have stolen from the nations. They have written checks that they can't cash. And soon those checks will come due. And the nations will come calling for their debt. What they have done to others will one day come back upon them. In the second woe in verses 9 to 11, we see their pride and their arrogance. They've built their house and their dynasty on the misery that they've inflicted on others. 
Yet all this is just bringing violence on themselves. Notice in verse 10, you have devised shame for your house. The Holman puts that a little bit better when it says, you have sinned against your own self. Yes, indeed, they are sinning against God. And yes, indeed, they are devising shame for the name of God. They would seek to defile God's own name. But what he says is, all of this, all of this work is bringing nothing but shame and sin upon yourself. The selfishness rebounds to yourself to destroy your own good. Friends, by making yourself great, powerful, and mighty, you're only laying the groundwork for showing how small, weak, and insignificant you really are. Selfishness, as it turns out, is really bad for you. Selfishness will never give you what you need. Selfishness will never make you great. Selfishness will never make you powerful. The scriptures hold out to us what it means to be rightly selfish. To think more of others. Great irony in scripture. The greater you make others, the greater God makes you. In verses 12 through 14, he talks about the vanity with which they work. Peoples who labor merely for fire. They are building structures that are going to do nothing but be burned in the end because God himself will establish his glory and the knowledge of the Lord will fill the world. All of this vain work will be nothing in the end. It will all burn down. You chase your own glory in this world. Seek the exaltation of your name. It is nothing more than the grasping after the wind. The wind, even if you were capable of catching it in your hands, stops being wind the minute it hits your hand. This is the sinister promise that comes to everyone who chases their own glory. The minute you think you get it, it will be removed from you because only God will be glorified and those who are humble beneath him. We are reminded of this in Ecclesiastes where the preacher says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. What does man gain? By all the toil at which he toils under the sun. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are filled with weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. You build, it will come down. You strive, it is for nothing, for it is only the glory of the Lord that will stand forever. Woe to those who work in futility. In verses 15 through 17, the woe comes upon those who think that they are carrying out the very vengeance of God. Indeed, the Chaldeans are being used to carry out the vengeance of God. But they think that they themselves are vengeance. They think that they themselves are serving only themselves and therefore are right in what they do. But God will show them that the manner in which you have handled this and the pride and the arrogance by which you have handled this means that you yourself will drink my cup. You do not get to escape the judgment that I will bring upon you simply because I am using you. God uses wicked men even in their wickedness and even though he knows that they are guilty and will bring punishment upon them. 
Lastly, the woe comes unto idolatry, which is nothing less here than insanity. We often think that idols are stupid, especially in our day and age. Making a little wooden figurine and thinking that that is God seems dumb to us. Indeed, I think it seems dumb to the people who do it as well. Because they don't think that that little wooden idol is God, but they think, best case scenario, that what they've done is built something that will enhouse a God, that God will come and infuse himself, a God will come and infuse himself into this little idol and help them and guide them and direct them. And what Habakkuk is saying is, how stupid is that? Best case scenario, he comes and inhabits this little idol. He still can't speak. His hands still can't move. He's still just in a piece of wood. What good is he going to do for you? You can overlay him with gold and silver and make it as beautiful as you want to, and never will it speak to you, never will it help you, never will it arise to do justice for you. The Lord, however, is in his holy temple. Indeed, even as we read about this, we are reminded of what our Lord has done for us, who has not come near to us in the form of an idol, in the form of one who cannot move, in the form of one who cannot reach out, in the form of one who cannot speak, but he has come as a man who has enfleshed himself in Jesus Christ to speak the words of God, to reach out with his hands and heal, multiply fishes and loaves, with his feet graciously going out to the nations, giving healing for all who call upon his name. Using the very hands that have healed to heal all through his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Idolatry is stupid. The Lord in his holy temple works all things for the good. In the end, this last bit of Habakkuk 2 is a reminder like Job of how we are to handle these things. We are simply, simply to be faithful, to trust that God will bring these to pass. That, by the way, is also what God wants to tell Habakkuk. He is worried that he will not be able to use the law correctly. He he wants people to rise up so that the law will be used to mitigate sin, to punish wrongdoing, to uphold that was good and just. What he wanted, it seems, is for the righteous to gain power, to apply the law, to quell bloodshed and wickedness. God simply will not allow the righteous to flourish that way. Habakkuk seems to think that The law can bring in the kingdom that God requires. You just need the right men. It might be true. You do need the right man, but that's not Habakkuk. And that's not going to be the people of Judah or the people of Israel. The heart of the book is expressed in this one short little pithy statement that when you're reading quickly, it seems like it's a throwaway line He simply says, the righteous shall live by faith. It can be interpreted in many ways. It might mean the righteous shall live by the faithfulness of the vision. The vision will indeed come true. God has emphasized that. It could mean the righteous will live by his faithfulness, his enduring keeping of the law, his enduring keeping the commandments of God. It can mean that the righteous will live by faith. 
simply trusting in God. I think it probably means something of all of them. He wants the nation, Habakkuk does, to do what is right. He wants the nation to be rightly formed, to think rightly about the law, to use the law as it's meant to, as Micah might say, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with God. What he needs to be corrected by is the idea that the law can bring that about. The law cannot bring that about. The law cannot give Habakkuk what he desires. It is incapacitated by sin. Sin takes those things which are dead and produces death in them. The law is nothing but dead. And by that, I simply mean that it is lifeless. It's not filled with sin. It is righteous, true, and good. But the law itself cannot give life because it has no life in it. Jesus has said, I have life in myself, and therefore I can give life to whomever I please. The law cannot do that. The righteous can never live by the law. That's what Habakkuk wants. He wants enough righteous people that we can all live by the law. Enough righteous people that we can make the law produce the kingdom that we want. Rather, the righteous can only live by faith. Even in the shadow of such a great disaster, even when such a bleak and disastrous picture is given, in Habakkuk's eye, this is gross and hideous. But he needs to trust that the Lord knows what he's doing. We need to see how difficult this probably was for Habakkuk. The Lord has said that a fierce, bloody, mighty nation is coming upon his people. The implication is simply butchery and destruction. The promise of life is gone. He will die. He believes he will die. He thinks that his righteous friends will die alongside their wicked countrymen. They will all die. You might want to ask God here, how will this possibly be? How am I simply supposed to live by faith in that? We don't get that answer. God doesn't give us the answers that we want. Much like Abraham being called to give up Isaac on the altar, he's not having explained for him why he is to do this, but he is simply to walk by faith. Why should I offer up my one and only son? Why should I offer up the son by the promise that you have given Why should I give up everything that I have labored for? Why should I do this? And God simply says, go and do it. And Abraham says, I believe and I trust in the Lord our God. I will go and do this thing. That is what living by faith means. It means not having all of the answers. Answers which are likely too great for us anyway. But simply trusting in the work of the Lord that while he calls us to do things that often seem to be at odds with what he promised, nevertheless we walk faithfully with our God. Oftentimes, the way of the world seems completely upside down to the way in which God calls us to live. God says that to be great is nothing more than to be humble. To lay down one's life is the way to have life. To think of others first is the way to have your most basic needs met. To be truly and bestly selfless, selfish, is indeed to be selfless. To have your best life is to live your best life for others and not for yourself. The world is upside down. The world is rotted through with sin. We think that we know what is right and true and good, but we have to walk by 
faith. The Chaldeans look for all the world like they will get the best of the people of God and victory in this world. This must have certainly been true for Habakkuk. But that worldly victory means nothing. It is for God simply a pathway to show true victory in other means. The Chaldeans look like they get to live and the righteous look like they will indeed die. But God says, you might not understand it, you might not believe it, but you've got to trust it. If you trust what I'm saying, even if it doesn't make sense to you, even if it doesn't seem right to you, even if your flesh repulses at it, trust it. You will live by it. This is true for Judah, how true this is for Christ. And how wonderfully what is said to Habakkuk applies to our Savior, who looked for all the world like he was a loser in his fight against the Jewish and Roman opponents. They seemed to have bested him. They abused him. They humiliated him. They killed him. They called out to him, if you are so great, if you indeed are the Son of God, then why don't you bring yourself down off of the cross? But it's precisely in his death that he shows victory over death, and thus his victory over those who carried him to death. He lives not by the power of the world, not by physical conquest, not by pride, not by selfish ambition, not by the power of chariots and horses, but by the power of God. He entrusts himself, as Peter says, to the one who judges justly. He lays down his life that he might live, Jesus Christ himself lives by faith. So yes, seek to be righteous. But those who desire to be righteous cannot bring about the kingdom that they desire through the law. They can't bring about the kingdom that they desire through rules. We must entrust that mysterious and grand work to God. We must walk by faith. Fourthly, we get the response of faith. Read with me the third and final chapter of Habakkuk. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember, mercy, God, came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like light rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath, O Lord, against the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. 
you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced his own with arrows, that, with his own arrows, the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. The response of faith is nothing less than the upholding of the glory of God, his mighty power and his wonder, and simply doing what one has been called to do, trusting in the Lord. Our God is mighty, he is powerful, he is splendid, he is glorious, and he is majestic. The picture that Habakkuk's song gives to us is truly awesome. It is a power that ought to produce fear in us. Hearing the words that he himself has sung, hearing the words that he himself speaks and writes down, he says that he quivers and rottenness enters his bones. He sees the power of God and he shakes at it. It is a power that brings death, that shakes the very center of the earth. Yet God's wrath is not against that earth. Even as it melts beneath him, it is on the peoples of the earth. The destruction that comes upon is nothing less than the ending of the world. The language is meant to provide for us a picture, not so much of fact, but of fear. This is what it means to be under the wrath of God. It means that there is no firm ground. It means that there is no place to hide. It means that God will lay you out. I want to focus, if we can, on just one verse, verse 13. It says, You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. The word anointed is the same word that we might rightly translate. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your Christ. God will save his people by saving his Christ. Because the people and the anointed one are one and the same. As we go, so goes he. As he goes, so go we. We are filled with sin and rottenness. We are filled with distrust in our very bones. We are filled with wickedness in how we act and treat one another in our own selfish endeavors. And so Jesus Christ, our Lord, our anointed one, takes on our own selfishness and our sin and buries it in death. But because he has lived himself a life of faith, he has risen in victory over it, and we then share in that victory. The salvation of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of him from the dead is indeed the salvation of his people from the same. 
second. You will notice how he does this. The end of verse 13. You crush the head of the house of the wicked. If you have read much in Scripture, that sounds a lot like that promise in Genesis 3.15. The snake will bite your heel, but you will crush his head. Indeed, Jesus crushes the head. The worldly enemies, frankly, are nothing but puppets. Paul, indeed, looks at them and says, we don't bother with flesh and blood. We're not fighting with flesh and blood. We are fighting the one who stands behind them. Christ will indeed bring justice to the nations, but he will also crush the head of him who works the evil behind the nations. He will take out the one who wields the strings and bring him to an end. Habakkuk shows us that he truly understands what God has done and what God will do. Verses 17 through 19, perhaps the demonstration of what a faithful response to God looks like. These verses were encapsulated in an old hymn called Sometimes a Light Surprises, written by William Cowper. Cowper was a man who, I'm saying that wrong, it's Cooper, sorry. I knew I knew I could see your little beady eyes drilling into the back of my head, Meredith. He should write his name correctly, Habakkuk. Uh, Cooper was a man who knew suffering in his life. His mom died when he was six. Depression, anxiety, suffering, and sorrow plagued him all of his life. He three times tried to end his own life, which landed him in the 18th century in an insane asylum, which is probably as good of a place as you're thinking that an 18th century insane asylum would be. But it was there that he found Christ. In his hymn, he reformats what Habakkuk says here to say this. Though vine nor fig tree, neither their wanted fruit should bear. Though all the fields should wither, nor flocks or herds be there, yet God, the same abiding. It's a pretty, pretty fantastic line, right? There's nothing for him. Like, there's no supermarket backstored food. If he goes out and he finds that everything has died, he's clear. That doesn't change who God is at all. Outward circumstances, disaster, indeed, this is a depiction of death. If death were to come, God yet is the same. Yet God the same abiding. His praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Ultimately, that's what faith looks like. It's trusting 
that God's work doesn't look like what we see in the world. That when disaster, strife, and trouble come, God is the same God that he was when he promised all that good to you. Entrust yourself to him. When death knocks for you, entrust yourself to him. Regardless of the darkness that surrounds us, regardless of the barrenness and depression that might engulf us, no matter what forces bear down upon you, tune your heart. Pray that God might tune your heart to sing his praise because he is the same God. And he will give victory even from the grave. His victory is sure, all the more for us than it was for Habakkuk, because we have seen him do this. We have a foretaste in Jesus Christ. Today, as we give thanks, let us be reminded of the great work that Jesus Christ has done for us, that although God might remove everything from us, although God might allow for us to waste away and die, yet still his promises are true. The righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we can do no more than to ask for the faith of Habakkuk. Let us be able to say with honest hearts this very same confession of Habakkuk. Regardless of what we see, we walk by sight, trusting our lives not to the law and the ability of men, but to Jesus Christ our Lord, who has given his life as our ransom and has promised us life even from the dead. Give us hope that we might cling to that, so that even as darkness surrounds us, we might live by the light of your word. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would, stand and sing with us our song of response, Take My Life and Let It Be.